0: My dad was a fisheries biologist his whole career, and so that meant for me, at least, at least when I was a young boy, that meant that we moved all around the state to rural places, like we lived in Sultan off of Highway 2 for a little while, and, uh, and one time we lived in Hump Tulips, which is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it kind of little town in the Washington rainforest off of Highway 101. Uh, anyone know where Hump Tulips is or been through there? Okay, Oh, that's surprising to me. That was always a fun one when I was preaching in California because people, hump tulips, you're making that up. Like, there's not places called that. Well, yeah, we have a clam called a gooey duck. So, I mean, come on. Um, So it sounds like a horrible place to live, and I wouldn't want to live there now, honestly, but for a seven-year-old boy, that's how old I was, it was awesome. They had eight-inch-long banana slugs there, rivers all over where I could fish in right in my backyard, and it was a rare day if you didn't see a deer or a coyote or, or a bald eagle or some kind of awesome otter or something cool like that. Anyway, one day my dad comes home uh, from working at the hatchery, and he's got this scrawny beat-up looking black cat. A- at the time, well, I still love animals, but I I was really into big cats and learning all about big cats, and my favorite big cat when I was seven was the cheetah, because it was the fastest. So immediately I said, that cat's name is going to be cheetah. Well, cheetah was a feral cat, uh, which means that technically he was a felinus domesticus, which means he's a domestic cat, right? But he's been in the wild so long that he's, he's become wild. And so we had cheetah in our house, uh, or we would put food out for cheetah on the back porch but he would never like to come inside and if he did he would immediately escape and it was common for cheetah to go unseen for days at a time only to return for food or to come back with little like cuts and pieces of his ear missing and stuff like that one time cheetah comes home with a big gash in his head and walking on three legs one paw just swollen and nasty and you know sensitive to the touch, and he was so messed up that uh, he allowed us to bring him inside for a while and to doctor him up, and Cheetah would even sit on our laps, and we could pet him, and I'm thinking, this is cool. Two weeks go by, and we think that this cat just loves it in our house, so anyway, two weeks go by, and I open the sliding glass door to go feed my dog, and Cheetah's gone. Uh, The call of the wild was just too much for him, and from that point on, he would just come back periodically for food and bandages, and one day, he just didn't come back, uh, because the call of the wild was so strong that Cheetah met finally probably some animal more wild than he. When Paul came into Corinth in the early 50s AD, he preached the good news of new life in Christ to a people who were living in the wild. And I don't mean people in Corinth were like raised by wolves or anything like that, but more like we might say uh, living in a big city like LA is like living in the jungle, right? Any Guns N' Roses fans, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, The the Corinthians are living in a world of corruption and violence and cutthroat competition and racist divisions. When Paul came proclaiming the good news of Jesus and that all people through Jesus might become brothers and sisters and one family uh, living in the family of God, it changed people's lives. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you were living in fear and anxiety. You were looking out for number one because out of the starting blocks in our culture, that's what we're taught to do. We're taught by our media and our movies and, and our music, uh, our cultural narrative uh, that says that the important things in life are power and sex and fame and performance. And these lures are timeless. Like it's not a twenty first century thing. It's it, it's a human thing. Well, anyway, the Corinthians converted to a new way of life with Jesus, and it was Paul, the missionary apostle, who brought this good news to them. Um, but after some time, the call of the wild began to tug on the Corinthian heart and mind. Uh, They began to allow the lure of power and prestige to invade their faith, and soon some of these people in the Corinthian church were becoming arrogant. They were thinking that they had arrived on their spiritual journey. Some even thought that they were more mature and Christ-like than Paul himself. The Corinthians had lost perspective. They lost knowledge of who they really were and who God really was. And we really focused on that last week um, when we looked at the prayer of examine, didn't we? And if you were here last week and you didn't get one of those little books, I've got 50 of them now for you. Just take them for free. They're on the back, the back table. But we looked at the importance of, of examining ourselves before Christ, not as a way to beat ourselves up, but a way of, uh, of looking at reality. Today, Paul is going to take the argument a little further. And instead of examining ourselves, we're going to look at uh, really at Jesus in the face. so would you stand with me, please, as we read 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. So this is Paul writing to this factious group in Corinth. You are already filled. You've already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as people condemned to death. Because we've been a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated, homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We've become, as the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things, even until this very time. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would still not have many fathers." For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he'll remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I'll come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out. Not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Lord, we thank you for this picture, this window back in time to a real situation, a real case study, if you will, of uh, a pride and a man who decided to love his Lord and his church more than his own ego and himself. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us not only to get our minds around what took place in Corinth um, so long ago, but what is going on in our hearts and in our community, and who are we before you today? Amen. may be seated. Eschatology is a word that theologians use to describe the study of the end or the study of the end things the end of the age Uh, unlike some world religions that see history as a series of cycles that come and go come and go repeat 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 judaism and christianity see history as linear as having a beginning and having an end And in the meantime, believing that God is somehow actively engaged in our world, guiding, acting with us and upon us at times, and leading his world to a desired end, at least the end of the age. We believe that God created humans and this world. We believe he oversees and intervenes throughout history, and he's watching and guiding. Now, how all that looks, what all it's going to specifically look like at the end of the age. Well, that's not really this, what the this sermon is about, and a lot of it's going to remain a mystery until the end of the age. But one thing both Jews and Christians believe is that at the end of the age to come, God's people will have a place of authority, like vice regents or um, stewards of, uh, 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 of authority. So get the picture out of your mind of, when I die, I'm going to be on a harp or a cloud playing a harp— uh, The kingdom of god when it comes in full is more like my people i now have things for you to do good things great vocation that you won't be frustrated in you know how so many of our vocations well all of them really uh, are frustrating because no matter how great a a teacher you are not all your students will get it know how great a doctor you are you can't fix everybody know how how great a, a preacher you are you're going to blow it most times, you know what I mean? So it's like, w- we're frustrated in our efforts in this age, but in the age to come, God is going to put us in, in charge of things, and, and, and it'll be so meaningful. So, I have these three flowers here, and they represent, well, let me, let me ruin this one a little bit more, okay. okay this one that's all smashed up <laughs> represents the age kind of that we're in. Like, that happens to everybody, last I checked, we all die. Um, most things that I put my hands to somehow are tainted or get screwed up. Um, our world is not perfect. How many wars are going on right now? D- how many of you are sick right now? And m- many others aren't even here because they're sick. So this is kind of the world we live in. And this is uh, the age to come, this beautiful, look at this thing. It's not even a tulip like those. I had to find one that was actually open, by the way. Before I tried to put a cheese nip in there to make one of these tulips open, it didn't look very good. So we found this rose. This, this represents the kingdom uh, in its fullness. Look at this glorious thing. And, and what we believe as Christians is that we live in this in-between time. If you look at, at this middle flower, for a casual onlooker, it looks almost as bad as this one. It's just green and boring. You may, may not even know that it's a flower. It's this tight, sealed-up bud. But through the right lens, like if you know something about what happens to this flower, a little bit of heat and sunshine and time, and it's going to be gorgeous. And so what happens is, is if we live with our minds over here all the time, that's called an over-realized eschatology, okay? When we live in an over-realized eschatology, what can happen is we start to think, we're already arrived, And our heads get in the clouds, and we just, you know, churches that uh, maybe live in an over-realized eschatology love to gather together, to sing together, and to do fun things together, but they kind of aren't very useful in the world like ah the world it's fading away we're just gonna live in this new creation in this new creation that's not quite here yet and in fact maybe an offshoot of an over realized eschatology would be like the health and wealth movement where you know you ought to be wealthy and not sick and if you're not if you don't have lots of good things or something's wrong with your body you're probably not doing something right with God Okay, so that, that's where an over-realized eschatology can, can lead us. Now, the other thing to be careful of is not to live in an under-realized eschatology to where all we see is pain and brokenness and death and despair because that leads to cynicism and faithlessness and no hope for tomorrow. And that's why as christians what we're trying to do and what paul's trying to get the corinthians to see is that we live in this in-between time a time that is pregnant with hope and yet it hasn't quite arrived yet and as people that live in the middle in the tension we don't pretend like suffering doesn't happen we don't like it we pray against it we try and alleviate it but we don't live with our heads in the clouds and pretend that it isn't there, and we don't live in despair pretending that that's the only thing or that death has the last word. We are in between Christians waiting for the hope of the new age to come. The Corinthians were acting as though they had arrived, like they were ruling as kings with God already, vice regents, over-realized eschatology, Paul says, you're already filled. You've already become rich. You've already become kings without us. In in other words, he's being ironic, sarcastic. You guys are already there, I guess. You're already ruling. And then he says, how I wish it were true. Because if it were true that the kingdom had actually come, that would mean Paul and the apostles and everybody would be ruling with Christ, right? But alas, I'm here to tell you, that is not the case. We are not at flower number three yet. In fact, just look at us apostles, the servants of God. We are last in line, a spectacle for the world. Now that line right there doesn't mean a whole lot to most of you, I would imagine. Didn't lean, mean a lot to me until I realized uh, through some study what, what he's talking about there. Everyone that he's talking to in Corinth would have understand perfectly. Here's what happens. When a conquering king conquers a foreign land... He has a procession back in his capital city. What happens is this. The emperor goes first into his home city. Then the generals and the priests. The first place this procession goes is the temple. They give a sacrifice. And then they meander through the streets and they go to the arena. Emperor, generals and priests. Long line of soldiers marching in formation. After them, the booty, the spoils of war or examples of it like the best horses that they got from the conquered enemy, some of the finest produce of the land. Uh, Sorry, but some of the women would be there too. And then they would have fine linens and clothing and all the bounty of the conquered land. And last of all in that processional would be some of the men of the conquered city that they allowed to stay alive. And this procession would end up in the arena, which comes from the Latin root for blood. Or sand, actually. The sand was used to soak up the blood. And these... Sorry survivors then would be put in the arena and made to fight wild animals, each other, or gladiators to the death. That is kind of how Paul is describing what he is and the apostles. He says, We give our lives for others, just like those people at the end of the procession are allowed to stay alive only to be killed as sport. We are fools for Christ. (laughs) You're so prudent, Corinthians. We are weak, a trait the Greco-Roman Corinthians hated, but you are strong, a trait that the world loves. You are distinguished among people, a designation that the world loves, but we are without honor, a designation the worldly Corinthians hated. We are mistreated and hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed. We are insulted, but when we're insulted, We bless those who insult us. To this day, there are cultures and religions that teach you must defend your honor by getting revenge if someone insults you. In the Corinthian world, you represented your family, so if someone came up to you in the street and insulted you, or your mama, or someone in your family, you were expected, I mean, it wasn't just like a thing personally, you were expected to either uh, physically challenge them or at least verbally come back and have it out with them to retain your family honor. It, a, a side example of, of an extremist view of this is some of the uh, violence that's gone on over these cartoons, uh, these drawings of Muhammad, right? It's like you've insulted this portion, and so in order to do the right thing, we need to, to get the honor back and, and, and retaliate. Paul and the apostles blessing those who cursed them was the worst form of countercultural weakness in the eyes of the Corinthians, okay? So you can kind of get a picture of why the Corinthians don't like Paul very much, because as they're, remember, getting the call of the wild back to their old worldly ways, they love things like dignity and honor and strength, and frankly, this, that's the stuff we like too, and And Paul is living in this life where he's constantly mistreated. He's not very dignified to at least the political people. Reminds me of those commercials that are recently, they've come and gone uh, uh, about DirecTV, right, starring Rob Lowe. Uh, Rob Lowe uh, subscribes to DirecTV, and he's pristine and, of course, good-looking and wears all the fine clothes. And then there's the alter-ego Rob Lowe who subscribes to cable. And, you know, you get these alter-ego Rob Lowe's like, Peaked in high school, Roblo, or super creepy Roblo, or painfully awkward Roblo. The much less attractive, socially marginalized Roblo characters subscribe to cable, where the put together Roblo subscribes to direct TV. Basically, Paul is saying, You Corinthians are like put together Roblo, and I'm loser Roblo, and I want you to imitate me. Does that help you get the force of what he's saying? Like, it's not just two neutral peers saying, imitate me. He absolutely, Paul embodies many of the cultural things that the Corinthians despised. And he's saying, imitate me. Imitate me. You're ashamed of me because I look like the things despised by the world, and I'm calling you to imitate me. Now, Paul's not following the world's recipe for success, so why imitate him? I mean, the simple answer is because he's imitating Jesus. In seven more chapters in this very letter, Paul is going to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, to be a Christian doesn't simply mean just believing the right things. In fact, the word Christian isn't even a word that the Christians gave themselves. Early on, as disciples of Jesus went to Antioch of Syria, the locals there said, you guys are acting like Christians, which means little Christs. They recognized the behavior, not just the beliefs of these early disciples, and gave them the designation Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian, to actually try and be like Christ. Yes, right belief is essential, but right belief needs to translate into right living. Christian thought should lead to Christian life. Paul is not trying to shame the Corinthians. But if they hear what he's truly saying, they kind of ought to feel ashamed. They didn't like Paul because he wasn't successful enough. Ironically, the very things they didn't like about Paul were the things that he was imitating Jesus on. So by line of logic there, if they don't like Paul, they don't like the way Jesus lived. You see what I'm saying? They thought they were better Christians than Paul, but Paul was actually imitating Jesus. Paul mentions being last in that parade, remember, of those people condemned to death by Roman conquerors. I seem to recall that Jesus was paraded down the Via Della Rosa by Roman authority and killed by the Romans. See the connection. Paul mentions being scum of the earth or dregs of all things. In Greek, the terms scum and dregs have connotations with cleaning solutions. Think of your laundry. You've got dirty, filthy clothes. And I've got a baby still in diapers, so some of those clothes are real dirty. And what you do is you put the dirty clothes in a vessel, in a tumbler, in a washing machine. You introduce pure, clean water and detergent. The pure, clean water and detergent mix with the clothes. They take the soiling, the stains, and then you pump off that water and detergent mixture. It's dirty as all get out. That's the dregs. That's the scum. And then what's left are pristine clothes, right? Clean clothes. Paul endures suffering. He bears the burdens of others. He absorbs insults without retaliation, and he does that as an imitator of Jesus. Jesus was pure and holy, just like the clean water and suds going into the washing machine. When he died on the cross, he took on the sins and stains and dirt of the world. He took on ugliness of death so that we might be made clean clean and have new life. Amen? That's awesome. That's good news. Paul refuses to return insults with snarky comebacks. He didn't seek revenge when he was wrongly beaten and accused, stoned to near death, or arrested. Paul didn't feel the need to defend his honor all the time because of his love for Jesus and other people Uh, was so much higher than his own need to be honored. And the story of the prodigal son, a son greatly dishonors his father. Says, I wish you were dead, takes his part of the inheritance, goes away for years, and spends it in wanton living. Now, in that culture, that father would be expected, if that son ever came back, that father would be expected to give his son a public, not a private, a public beatdown. Like, Remember in the, in the riots in Baltimore when that mother takes her kid who's throwing stuff and just... That's similar in, in culture. It would have been a dishonorable thing for the father not to give a public beatdown because his name was tarnished. His son had so dishonored the family, right? Well, what happens is, of course... The son is coming back. The father sees him on the horizon. This elder of a man, head of the household, does what no man in that age should do. He grabs his robes and starts running towards the kid, exposing his lower legs, which was a no-no in that culture. Sounds ridiculous. I wore shorts yesterday, so I don't get it. But he runs out there. Instead of the public beatdown, buries his face in the son's neck, embraces this with unimaginable love and humility. And what happens is, and I've heard this said before by many a scholar, it shouldn't be called the prodigal son, it should be called the prodigal father. The father acts without honor and dignity by allowing his son to come back like that. The father brings shame to his own name, to his own family, to his own village, because he doesn't beat the son down. That's the kind of God that we have. Just like our Father in heaven gave himself in a humiliating death on a cross to bring us back into the family, Paul is imitating Christ. He calls us to imitate him, and he imitates Christ, so he is calling us to imitate Christ. Imitation. The word is almost always used negatively. Here are some synonyms. Artificial, bogus, dummy, fake. Faux, mock, simulated, duplication, reproduction, replica. When you go to the, the the restaurant and you get the seafood fettuccine, and the waiter or waitress says, "Do you want the imitation crab meat?" I live in Washington, lady or man. I I want the Dungeness crab, right? Of course, you don't want the imitation. Sorry if you like imitation crab meat. That's your. I'll pray for you. That's a problem. <laughs> How can imitation be a good thing? I mean, we're taught to be ourselves, we're taught to be authentic, and Paul is saying, imitate. Imitate. I propose that imitation can be a good thing if the one we are imitating is the archetype, if the one we are imitating is the creator, the original, that we were actually created to be like. In the beginning, God created men and women in his image fully human fully in the image of god when our ancestors rebelled against god that image in us was broken now of course we still bear a strong resemblance to the father which is why anything good that happens well in the world happens at all christian or non-christian men and women boys and girls we bear part of the image of god that's why we have love and we have we want to do good but we're, we're broken. It's like cracked statues walking around. Or if you're in computers, like me, corrupted code. It's like corrupted code. It works most of the time, but sometimes it just crashes, right? Uh, we're smudged mirrors reflecting God's character and goodness with distorted clarity. Like we're not giving off the full reflection of the Father. But Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus is the full expression of God. He's fully human, uh, as humans were originally created to be. When we imitate him, and only when we imitate him, are we being genuine to whom we're created to be. And I, I don't know if you've found, I'm sure you have, but when we imitate Jesus, we find that we actually become more ourselves, more alive, more good in the truest sense of godly goodness than we could ever imagine. And that is such good news. That's gospel right there, that, that we are invited to have new life in Christ as we imitate him. Now, the problem I have, being kind of a visual person, is I can't see Jesus, and I can't, like, talk to him like I can talk to you over coffee or something. And uh, we, you know, we can follow what he says in the Bible, and we can follow what is said about him in the Bible, and that is absolutely the place we ought to start. But it also helps to have models, doesn't it? Paul was an example. He followed Christ, and he had people that followed him. But like, Paul's been dead for 1950 years or something like that. Uh, How have followers of Jesus passed down their tradition? Well, they've become models for other people. I mean, Paul had Timothy, right? And there was Justin, and Irenaeus, and Polycarp, and Athanasius, Macrina, the sister who's often forgotten but was the spiritual bedrock for her brothers who are more famous, Basil and Gregory. There's John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, Augustine, Patrick, Ambrose, Teresa of Avila, Bernard, Dominic, Catherine, and Julian of Norwich. There were disciples who imitated Jesus, who imitated disciples imitating Jesus, who imitated disciples imitating Jesus. The question then for, the, for us, or for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, is, am I worth imitating? Like, could I say with integrity, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Let me just say this to kind of clear the air. In one sense, it really doesn't matter the answer to that question. It doesn't matter if you feel ready or not, because people will imitate you. Um, the easiest example, of course, is with children, Um, My kids, it's scary some of the things I see them do that look just like me and some of the things I'm glad they imitate me on You're thinking I don't have kids. That's your problem Well, it's our problem if I could be blunt because my kids watch you And they pick up on cues of how you interact with your spouse and with other people and so We imitate each other Whether we think about it or not people who know that you represent christ or checking out what it is you're doing. So in some, one sense, it doesn't matter if you feel like you can say that with integrity or not. People are watching. Right? On another, in another sense, the answer is no, I'm not worth imitating. And I also think that's a really healthy place to be. I get it wrong. A lot. And here's an important reality. Paul wasn't perfect either. He made mistakes but the one thing about Paul is that you get the sense that he's always on a path toward imitating Jesus. He was consistently making choices that led him and other people closer to Jesus. You and I won't be perfect in this, but the call is a call of growth, not a call of instant perfection. And I think it's important for us as followers of Jesus, who are trying to imitate Jesus, to lead with an extreme dose of humility, to regularly find ourselves repenting and admitting when we make mistakes, and saying we are sorry in front of those who might be imitating us or looking at us. Quickly apologizing when we're wrong, and we need we need to model this with our kids and our spouses and our friends and our coworkers everybody we don't stop at just saying i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry over and over and we don't plateau at well i'm not perfect we confess our wrongs but then we model to whoever is watching that we're trying to grow. We're choosing to grow. You know, I recognize this with my kids recently. Um, for the last year, I've been meeting with a group of guys on Thursday morning um, for spiritual growth, trying to become more like Christ. And so we would meet early in the morning. Then I would come home and get the kids ready for school. And the kids would say, where, where were you going? Where were you? I was at a meeting. I was at a meeting. I was at a meeting. My kids just think that I, all I do is go to meetings and talk on Sunday. And in a way that's my fault that they think that because I say when I'm going to meet with people I'm going to a meeting. Well, I realize how lame that is because what does that even mean? So A few months ago, I started to frame it in this way That daddy is trying to grow to be more like jesus And i'm hanging out with other people who are trying to do the same thing You see the huge difference there of what that communicates to someone who might imitate me There could be the fallacy that, oh, dad's the pastor, he must have already arrived, be that overrealized eschatology. I should just read my journal sometime, which I hope they don't, but, you know, uh, we need to be modeling humility, and that we're not done growing, and that we need help, and we need each other, and I think that that's a powerful uh, stance for us to have. There are lots of imitations out there in life, lots of scams offering fulfillment that lead to death, but imitating Jesus is genuine. We imitate Him because he's the one who created us and knows who we're supposed to be. Ah, that's awesome. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for not only uh, modeling what real life as a human could be like, but coming to us when we're unable to make that change for ourselves. For dying for us, to remove the, uh, the stain of sin on us. For rising from the dead, breaking the back of death itself. That death cannot hold us any longer. And for sending your spirit to help mend those cracks in our image-bearing selves. That we could become more and more and more whole in you. Lord, I pray for uh, my brothers and sisters and I, each one of us probably keenly aware of a few of those flaws, those cracks in our, in ourselves. And I pray that you would come and that you would heal and that you would help us to walk in grace one day at a time. Amen.